you've heard the commandments that says you must not commit adultery. But I say anyone who even looks at a woman with lust has already committed adultery with her in his heart. So if your eye, even your good eye, causes you to lust, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for the whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your hand, even your stronger hand, causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. Yeah, Father, we thank you for your words and we thank you for Rob. Uh, we pray that you would uh, work powerfully through Rob, that you would speak to our hearts and our minds. Um, yeah, Holy Spirit, be active and use Rob, we pray. Yeah, In Jesus' you, name. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Rob. Okay, well, I'm just going to start with a, a recap because it's been a couple of weeks since uh, we've been looking at, at the Sermon on the Mount. And one of the, the problems of looking at, at the Sermon on the Mount in bite-sized portions, as we've been doing, is that it's easy to have a, a blinkered approach to one bit of teaching and lose sight on the emphasis of the whole. So I'm going to um, recap on, on some things that have already been said just to, to set the scene. Um, so Jesus' teaching, we've established, is not intended to replace the law. And it's not intended to pile a whole load of exacting extra commands, a load of do's and don'ts, so that we're burdened not only with God's moral law as taught in the Old Testament, but a heap of other things that Jesus commands as well. Instead, uh, in this sermon, we're presented with the principles of kingdom of God living. Jesus is telling us this is the way uh, that the sons of the kingdom will live. Those who understand the heart of God and, and put into practice a way of living out of a relationship with, with Jesus, a relationship with God the Father. And as we know, of course, Jesus didn't only teach these principles in the Sermon on the Mount, but it, and, and teaching like that, but he also illustrated a lot uh, in parables uh, and he demonstrated through his whole life that, uh, the love uh, and concern of God through his powerful ministry. So what about the Sermon on the Mount so far? Well, having laid down um, godly principles in the Beatitudes, uh, he told us that we were the light of the world and he challenged us to be sought in the earth and he's also established that that he hasn't come to abolish the law um, but he is upholding the law by fulfilling it and so with this backdrop he stated and this is uh, probably about three weeks ago now we were looking at this um, perhaps shockingly to his listeners he said that the righteousness that that's shown by the scribes or teachers of the law and the pharisees was not the sort of righteousness that's compatible with the kingdom of God. In fact, I think he, uh, he, he even said, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees. Because such a righteousness has got a form of godliness, but actually the hearts of the people were far from the Father. They were sticking rigidly to the letter of the law, um, but they'd lost their grip on 
the spirit of the law and God's original intention for it. Um, the one trap that we can fall into with such a legalistic following of commandments like that is to put things in boxes and to separate out command every command and ring fence it and then try to follow every sentence in isolation. Um, but uh, even even in the Ten Commandments, we shouldn't even look at we shouldn't look at those as being like separate commandments because they are interrelated. And we're going to be looking at uh, Jesus talking about do not commit adultery. Um, but the Tenth Commandment says do not covet, and included in the list of things you shouldn't covet is, is your neighbour's wife. The, all these commandments were never intended to just be isolated in in boxes. Um, and uh, in a table that you can tick them and make sure that uh, you're following them. Um, but instead, they were to be taken uh, as a whole. <clears throat> I can relate to this tendency to put things in boxes a little bit, and there's a little bit of um, personal testimony, particularly in my earlier Christian life. Having become a Christian at the tender age of 16, uh, it wasn't long before I was 17 and I learned to drive. And with the great encouragement and expectation of my peers, I was whizzing around as fast as I could, testing any car. Anyone was to let me drive right to the limit. Um, and then there was a, I think when I was, I think probably about 18, a, a meeting I, I attended, I, I got this strong conviction about speeding and decided that I was going to stick strictly to speed limits. So I stuck rigidly to the letter of the law but still accelerated uh, and braked like crazy. I was paying lots of attention to the numerical expression of the law while disregarding the more important requirement to drive with due care and attention. And even the more important principle to show love and care to fellow road users and my own passengers. Um, one of those passengers uh, who was Heather Ridley at the time um, is still recovering from the experience. Um, <clears throat> So I'm not saying we don't need to obey the speed limits. We definitely should. The Bible says that we should submit to the governing authorities of the land. But I'm saying that we should do that and set a good example by careful and responsible driving. So back to the Sermon on the Mount. <laughs> um, so having declared the principle uh, or, or these principles of, of the kingdom, Jesus gives six examples of, of how we should live and how we should interpret the law. And he starts each one by saying, you have heard that it was said by them of old time, which is uh, um, like the, the authorised version puts it. Meaning, this is the way it's been taught to you by the teachers of the law and the Pharisees, because they're not looking in isolation, but um, they are, they're just looking at things in isolation, but not understanding the heart of the command. And he's, he's saying you've been taught in the wrong way, a way that is at odds with the kingdom of God. So it's not enough just to have a tick list, as I mentioned earlier. Do not murder, tick. Do not commit adultery, tick. But understand instead the heart of the command. If you harbour anger against your brother or sister, you're not loving them with a godly love. You're not following the principle that is behind the command. Do not commit murder. That was the passage we were looking at. Uh, two weeks ago. <clears throat> as a general principle, we could summarize this as man looks on the outside, but God looks at the heart. The Pharisees were obsessed with the externals, 
but Jesus addresses that which is internal. And Jesus says, blessed are the pure in heart, uh, for they shall see God. Uh, it's not the pure outside, it's the pure in heart. So now we come to the second example that Jesus gives, uh, which is a passage we're going to be looking at today, which, is, which says, do not commit adultery. And that means a married man must not have sex with someone who he's not married to, and a woman must not have sex with someone who she is not married to. Um, so, well, I haven't done that. So that's good, isn't it? Tick, um, enter smug mode. Um, but, says Jesus, you haven't got to the heart of the command, because even if you look at a woman lustfully, whether you know her or not, you've effectively committed adultery with, with her in your heart. Those who aspire to enter the kingdom of heaven, who love God and want to please him in every way, in word and deed, they need to aspire to a purity that goes beyond the letter of the law and obeys the spirit of it, God's intention, and to allow nothing to get in the way of their relationship with the Father. Now, around that same time when I was a young Christian, um, I, I also heard, uh, received some teaching and uh, about adultery. And the man giving that teaching said, hands up those who are not married. And then he, when everybody put their hand up, he said, you cannot commit it. And I thought, oh, great. That's one I don't have to worry about. But the truth is that this teaching of Jesus applies to the married and unmarried, because both are capable of looking at people lustfully. And in case, in fact, uh, next week, we're going to be looking at um, the next section about divorce. And Jesus uses the word adultery there. And even there, we can see that it has a wider application than the narrow definition. Um, so the bar is set quite high. The word that's translated lustfully in this translation and others could perhaps be translated with longing. And it's sometimes translated covet or desire. It's about wanting something you should not be wanting. And for men, this is one of the most challenging teachers of Jesus uh, because we've nearly all fallen short of it. Uh, I, say, I say nearly just because I don't know everybody here. And just in case there's some guy who, who says, well, I don't know what you're talking about, um, then I'm just saying nearly, but pretty much all. <laughs> uh, from a, a personal testimony, I was conformed to the pattern of the world, which doesn't take seriously this teaching of Jesus and, well, still less empowers people to follow it. But I can testify to enormous change and that with the applied wisdom and power of the Holy Spirit, we have the ability to overcome. And I want to encourage other guys uh, with that who are going uh, on a similar journey. Now this of course is not the right forum to, to go into more detail than that about this topic. Um, but in your pursuit of being a follower of Jesus, this is an area, if, it, if this is an area which needs attention, I'd encourage you to get someone alongside you and take strides to overcome. Because while most men naturally have a strong sex drive, there are strategies and keys for ensuring that it doesn't cause you to sin and ensuring that you control it rather than it controls you. 
I've been talking about men um, <clears throat> and the example that Jesus gives is addressing a man looking at, uh, at a woman, but women, of course, can also look at men with a wrongful desire and both women can also lust after their, their own gender. Um, <clears throat> we'll just uh, then move on really from those first two verses and sort of transition into the next two. So the fact that the next two is that the, the next two verses are talking about being radical in your pursuit of holiness and having the courage to deal with sin effectively. So Jesus says, if your right eye causes you to stumble or offend or sin in, in some translations, um, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than your whole, for your whole body to go into hell. It's a good example of um, repetition um, of the same principle for, for the sake of emphasis. Now, I don't know anyone who believes in these verses that Jesus is advocating literal self-mutilation. There are many instances, aren't there, where Jesus uses figures of speech to emphasise what he's saying. And one example that, that springs to mind is where Jesus says, be on your guard. He says to his disciples, be on your guard against the yeast of the Pharisees and of Herod. And then the disciples start discussing it amongst themselves, uh, saying, oh, he's, he's, uh, he's saying we haven't got enough bread. Um, and Jesus has to correct them um, because they've taken Jesus literally. I don't know how they managed to get the idea that they hadn't brought enough bread uh, from just saying, be on your guard against the yeast. But anyway, they did. They picked up the wrong end of the stick. Um, another example very quickly is that Jesus on the night he was arrested said if you have a purse take it and also a bag and if you don't have a sword sell your cloak and buy it and the disciples taking quite literally and say look we've got two swords and Jesus says no that's enough and he, later on when they actually try and use the sword uh, Jesus again says enough of this um, I think that the disciples took him literally when uh, Jesus had not intended that so there are times when we should not take Jesus literally because there were times when he was deliberately speaking figuratively, but we must always take Jesus seriously and pay heed to what he intends, what he's saying. And the message here is clearly deal with sin in your life. Don't tolerate it. Do whatever radical action is necessary to put it to death. And the reference here is surely not to the occasional slip up, but to influences in our lives either that are either inside of us or external to us that cause us to repeatedly disobey God. We need to deal with those things. Before we look at how to tackle it, I want to mention some more scripture that addresses our need to take sin in our lives seriously. Um, and this message is inherent in a lot of New Testament writing. There can be a mistaken tendency to think that somehow the God of the New Testament is different from the God of the Old Testament, that somehow he's changed his mind or he's relaxed his stance on sin a bit. 
we don't have to sacrifice animals anymore after all sin is not such a big deal as it was and um, people i've even heard people say things like god doesn't mind what i do it doesn't matter because he'll forgive me anyway and all of this is dangerous misleading talk i've always felt this if you want to take know how seriously god takes sin then look no further than the cross if you picture jesus being crucified taking on him the sins of the world that's how serious sin is the injustice of an excruciatingly cruel punishment of an innocent man that's what our sin did to jesus the cross is our witness that sin matters of course the fantastic news is that the cross is finished our sin is paid for but we receive the redemption that god offers by repenting of our sin turning to god and in faith receiving forgiveness and eternal life but that action of repenting means we've turned away from sin and the life we live now needs to be lived according to the spirit or as paul puts it you died to sin how can you live in it any longer uh, and paul also said to the galatians those who belong to christ jesus have crucified the sinful nature with its passions and desires since we live by the spirit let us keep in step with the spirit so the new testament writers urge us to put to death that which belongs to the sinful nature paul says put to death this is in colossians put to death therefore whatever belongs to your earthly nature sexual immorality impurity lust evil desires and greed which is idolatry because of these the wrath of god is coming and peter says therefore rid yourself of all malice and all deceit hypocrisy envy and slander of every kind like newborn babes crave pure spiritual milk so that by it you may grow up in your salvation now that you have tasted that the lord is good we have um probably in this church we've, we've never you've never received teaching about hell and um but it is mentioned in in this passage and in the last one uh it's it's um a strong part of uh, the two verses that we're looking at now and so i obviously we can't uh, go into it in a great deal of detail but um, I do want to, um, but I just want to point out a few things, and um, and hopefully that will be helpful. Um, that's at the risk of making this the heaviest talk of the year, um, to which Nita said that's my fault for volunteering for this portion on the Sermon on the Mount. But anyway, here <laughs> here are uh, a few uh, few things to say about hell. So firstly, the word in Greek for hell in these verses is Gehenna, which is a word most frequently used in Matthew, Mark and Luke, where Jesus is referring to ultimate punishment for sin following judgment. The word is derived from the Hebrew for the Valley of Hinnom and apparently represented a perpetual burning rubbish dump. Um, at least the word in Mark and Matthew is associated with the word fire. Um, second point, Jesus uh, where Jesus talks about hell. Jesus, in his depiction of the end judgment in Matthew 25, in a, uh, in a 
a story, if you like, or a um, teaching known as the sheep and the goats. It refers to a place of punishment for the goats as eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. And then moving on to Revelation 19, 20 and 21, all in those three chapters, there re there's reference to a lake of fire or a lake of burning sulfur. And this is the place that is assigned to the beast, the false prophet, the devil, death itself, even Hades, and all those whose names are not found in the book of life. All three of those depictions uh, of hell are described as eternal, and they appear to be describing the same thing. Last point I want to make, um, because I was misled uh, by this from my in my upbringing hell is not the devil's headquarters it is his place of final punishment the devil is not in control of hell um, there is uh, if you wanted to study it there is a place uh, which is called the abyss in scripture which may be considered to be something like that but even that is uh, doesn't quite fit the fit the description of uh, satan's headquarters for example, um, the demons in, in Luke 8 uh, pleaded with Jesus that they wouldn't be sent to the abyss. And in Revelation 20, it becomes a prison for Satan for a thousand years with an angel holding the key. So it doesn't quite fit, fit the description of a headquarters. <laughs> but anyway, that so hell is not is not the devil's place in the way that heaven is God's place. So over the centuries, there's been a lot of debate about hell, and many people have a problem believing that it is or even will be real. Um, but the problems are often with the concept of it rather than the actual lack of clarity in scripture. Um, the best strategy in gaining your understanding carefully, of course, from the Bible, rather than what somebody is, to, is rather, sorry, is to, is to get your teaching from the Bible, rather than what someone has told you as a child or from paintings or various theories that have been, been developed from countless writers through the ages. Moving on, whatever you believe about it, about hell, Jesus in his teaching is saying, avoid it at all costs. Can sin really result in death and hell? Well, yes, if not dealt with. In Revelation 21, it says, to the thirsty I will give water without cost from the spring of the water of life. That's fantastic, isn't it? Those who are victorious will inherit all this, and I will be their God, and they will be my children. But the cowardly, the unbelieving, the vile, the murderers, the sexually immoral, those who practice magic arts, the idolaters, and all liars, they will be consigned to the fiery lake of burning sulfur. In Revelation 22, it says, again, starting with the good news, blessed are those who wash their robes, that they may have the right to the tree of life and may go through the gates into the city. Outside are the dogs, those who practice magic arts, the sexually immoral, the murderers, the idolaters, and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. <clears throat> there is 
an alternative in reading various scriptures about sin leading to death I, what struck me was how the biblical writers while they don't pull their punches about sin nearly always accompany it with the better alternative um, those two scriptures i've just read from revelation are uh, examples um, and here are some others um, in romans 6 it says for the wages of sin is death but the gift of god is eternal life in christ jesus our lord uh, Galatians 6 says, do not be deceived. God cannot be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. The one who sows to please his sinful nature, from that nature will reap destruction. The one who sows to please the spirit, from the spirit will reap eternal life. In Romans 8, it says, it says, therefore, brothers, we have an obligation, but it is not to the sinful nature to live according to it. For if you live according to the sinful nature, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live, because those who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. The, <clears throat> the alternative to following uh, the ways of staying in sin are clearly put. So summary of this passage could be, A, don't just avoid adultery, recognise the wrong internal desires that lead to it, and B, deal with sin in your life radically and decisively. How do we do this? John says, if we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. So the first thing in dealing with sin is to point out that God has graciously given us the gift of repentance. His kindness originally introduced us to repentance when we were born again so that he could bless us with forgiveness through the blood of Jesus and from that the righteousness that comes through faith in Jesus. So if you make a mistake, repent, turn to God and receive forgiveness and move on. But what about the things that, that seem to have a grip on us? Things so that we keep slipping up and keep sinning in the same way. We need to recognise the cause and to take radical action like Jesus is saying, um, so that these things will not be our undoing. <clears throat> Here's a Here's a list, just an example uh, of a few things that, if necessary, you should be prepared to do if that's what it takes um, to get rid of sin in your life. And you will be able to fill in, uh, add your own to this list. Number one, delete the app that you can't stop using. Unfollow someone. I know there are repercussions to that. Come off Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram altogether. Stop your subscription to Netflix or Prime, Sky or, or Virgin Media. Move jobs so that you can break off the wrong relationship with one of your work colleagues. Um, I actually gave that advice to uh, somebody uh, many years ago who, uh, who was in a, in a wrong relationship. Uh, stop meeting with a group of friends that you always get end up getting drunk with or end up in sinful course joking. 
Refuse yourself use of the television when you're staying over in a hotel on business, perhaps. Break off a relationship that is harmful. Finally, tell someone what you've been doing or struggling with and ask them to support you until you're free of it. These are just a few examples of, I think, the kind of things that, that Jesus is referring to. Um, we should be radical, not reckless, not saying do these kind of things uh, uh, without care and consideration uh, as to what the root of the problem. You don't want to pluck out your right eye if actually the left eye was the problem. Um, so be radical, but not reckless. So in summary, let's not be casual about sin in our life. Let's be passionate about pursuing holiness and purity of heart. We would be hypocritical if we just agree with this teaching but don't examine ourselves. So what is God saying to you in this? Um, is there any action you need to take? Um, we could uh, sort of uh, move on to questions in a moment, but shall we just uh, pray and commit that to God and uh, and if you want to, and pray that, uh, this prayer with me. Lord God, we thank you for the, the radical and, and straightforward words of Jesus. And Lord, I want to pursue holiness and I want to pursue purity of heart in my life. Lord, please would you highlight to me anything that uh, where things are causing me to, to sin and where I need to take some radical, some root action uh, in order to be free of it. Lord, we thank you for your gift of repentance and um, of faith and being able to, to turn to you for our forgiveness. And thank you, Lord, that you've begun a work in us and you will carry it through to completion. Amen.